Good afternoon, everybody. So, are you ready to go home? It's been good to have you all here. I've really, I was just telling Joe, um, I feel like uh, in, in Bible schools in the past, I've been really involved with the students and a lot going on with my wife gone and my fam- part of my family missing. I've been a lot more, I feel like I've missed out a lot in getting the opportunity to spend time with you all and, and know each of you individually. And that's, uh, that's kind of a bummer. I wish I would have had more time to spend with each of you. However... I feel like I was able to pour into these meetings more than I, more than I have in the past as well. So hopefully there's a, a little bit of an exchange there. I, um, you know, when when we have meetings like this, there's this. Okay, so you've listened to me for by the time we're done here, what is that? Uh, seven and a half hours, five and an hour and a half. Um, that's a lot of talking times three is, times four is what we've done. Um, that's a lot of content, a lot of, a lot of information, and a lot to deal with. And <clears throat> I assume that somewhere between 70% and 80% of that's going to just get lost somewhere in the fuzz. What I would recommend over the next weekend or the next week is to spend some time, like, processing and thinking about what of this do I want to hold on to? Like, you don't got to hold on to all of it. Like, you can't hold on to all of it. Let's just face that fact. Uh, it's stimulating thoughts. It's important things. It's good to prime the pump and get your, get our minds and our hearts working about the issues that we've been discussing. But you're not going to hold on to it. Um, we will have the videos up again if you want to revisit some of this stuff eventually. But my my main point is that Find some time for yourself over the next week somewhere and go back through and give yourself an inventory and find the things that you feel like are really needful for you, that you you really need to take out of this week and find some kind of plan of action for how to put it in place in your life to, to move forward with these things. So that's that's an encouragement I have for you all going home. I want to. I, I have only one real point that I want to make today. Um, I'm kind of slow to make points, so, but I hope I hope that uh, we can end a little bit early. And I would I would like to be done by two, and I'd like to have a time for some question and answer. And I actually want it to be quite open ended. I don't care if it's from my session or wherever. If there's things that you just have on your heart that you want to share. If there's things, questions you've wanted to ask, Charlton's here, so even if there's anything from the last session, um, we'll, we'll hopefully make a little space for that. Um, and and even, if you, even if you just want to testify or talk about something, hopefully we'll have some time for that. So be, have that in mind as we, as we move forward here and be thinking about that. What I want to talk about, okay, so let's review. Monday we talked about the definition of a disciple. Tuesday we talked about the hindrances of a disciple. Wednesday we talked about the, the, the tests and the failures and successes of a disciple. Yesterday we talked about the training of a disciple. 
Today, I want to talk about the community of the disciples because it's, an, it's important to me to leave on this note that we talk before we end on the value of community and what its impact is on the disciple. Um, so I want to make this point in a few ways. The first is that we started, when we talked about disciples, we, we talked about how these weak group, strong group connotations affect whole people groups. And we know generally that we in the West lie on the weak group side of that spectrum. And it is especially important for us to be mindful that what the gospel is calling us to is not to go to heaven when we die. It's not personal forgiveness from your sins. Those are components to the gospel. But the gospel itself, and this is, I, some people argue with me about this sometimes. The gospel is what Jesus told the disciples to go and say was the gospel. And that was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God is the gospel. It's, it doesn't have to, it's no more complicated than that. I mean, it's infinitely more complicated than that. But it can be summed up exactly that simply. The gospel is the kingdom of God on earth. That's the gospel. Jesus as Messiah has come to usher in this kingdom. That's the gospel. That's the evangelion. That's what Jesus sent his people to say when he was telling them to preach the gospel. That was, there was a gospel before anybody around him knew anything about a resurrection or a crucifixion or any of these components that we're used to associating with the gospel. And those things are not unconnected, but they are not the gospel. The gospel is the kingdom. Those are vehicles. That's process. That's how these things came to be. The gospel itself is about Jesus as king. The implication of that and why it matters is that what we're saying when we talk about discipleship is your place in the kingdom. Discipleship is the way that you engage with and interact with and take part in that kingdom that he brought. And in that sense, it's very, very right to say the gospel is not about you. The gospel is about Jesus. And what Jesus is doing is making a nation. And so where I interact with the gospel, I'm interacting as an alien who's being brought into a nation, as an orphan who's being brought into a family, as a stranger who's being made a part of God's people. Those are, the, those are my interactive pieces of what the gospel does to me. And so all of that implies my connection with and association with and affiliation with God's people. There is no sense in which a Jew in the Old Testament can think of himself as a Jew without that meaning his identity within Israel. Israel is necessary to the identity of a Jew. You can't be a Jew on your own. To be a Jew to be a Jew means to to be a Jew means to partake in Israel. It means to be a member of the nation of Israel. That's what a Hebrew is. And to be a Christian means to be partaking in the nation of God on earth. It's not, a, it's not an individual identity. It's a corporate identity. And to that end, our place within the community does a lot, a lot of important things 
in our discipleship because it's the school together. It's the, it's the, it's the nation working out its polity and its, its process. It's the nation being what God made them to be. So all these things that we talk about, you know, the, the things of nation apply to the kingdom. The things of state apply to the kingdom. We have foreign uh, policy. We have domestic policy. We have, fin- we have economic policy. We have immigration policy. We have all kinds of policies are involved in the kingdom of God. They're established by our king. Rabbit trail. Those things, like, as, as non-resistant people, we're, there's often a bill of goods sold about non-resistance that claims to be apolitical. A meaning not political. What does political mean? Political is the way, politics is the way that a group of people organize themselves. And to claim that the church is not political is a wrong statement. I know what we mean by that usually. We mean not, we we usually mean that we're not worldly politics. This is what we're trying to say. But it often gets stated in terms of being apolitical. And the kingdom of God, the fact that it's called a kingdom, makes it clear this is not apolitical. We have all kinds of politics. We have all kinds of ways that we organize ourselves. We have all kinds of ways that we structure our way of being in the world around our organization as a group of people. And all of that comes from the kingship of Jesus and him establishing us and ordering us and making us who we are. So we are not apolitical. We are political. It's just that, like Jesus says before Pilate, my kingdom is not of this earth. We have a different kind of order. But it is still an order. And when I hear people say the church isn't political, it makes me, it's, it's, it's the same kind of like, it grates on the same nerve as when I talk to people and they say I'm spiritual but not religious. That's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an oxymoronic statement. The two things can't go together. If you're spiritual, you have to be religious. If you're Christian, if you're in the kingdom, if you're in the kingdom, you have to be political. So rethinking some of those things is, is, is valuable because it puts us back in the terms of a group of people together and organizing ourselves. And what does that mean? And how do we do that? And where do we look to leadership to Jesus in order to be what he wanted us to be? All of this to say, when we're, when we're considering ourselves as disciples or making disciples or any of the things that are connected to our discipleship, those have to have a lens that involves the community. And there's a whole lot of lines of community. There's a whole lot of tiers of community. At the biggest, broadest concept, we have the, like, the, the, the pan-geographical, pan-chronological, universal church of Jesus that crosses time and place and has always been one thing and always will be one thing that's much bigger than you or I even conceptualize. The church of Jesus Christ across all the places where all the people who have their identity in him are one thing. But that level of organization, I can have very little interaction with. I mean, there's, there's Christians all over the world that I don't even know exist. 
And so I can't meaningfully interact with that level of the church. There are some important theological concepts that come to me. There are some important teachings from the scriptures that I need to be engaging with so that I can properly understand, you know, like, like the humility of not thinking my own little people here are the only real Christians in the world, or this one, these one church mentalities that create hubris and, and division and schism in the body. Those, it's, so it's important to understand that there's a bigger sense of church than me. There's also, you know, the affiliations that we make in church life, like who my people are connected to, how we recognize each other and involve each other, get involved in each other's lives. This is also another, another issue that we have to think about. At some point, we have to think about what does it mean to be a part of a church that knows other Christians and how do our interactions work with each other, other people who are claiming themselves to be Christians, where do we sit at tables together, where do we interact together? These are complex things sometimes. But all this to say, at the most meaningful level, the closer you get to the communion table, the more it matters. That's what I'll say. The closer we come to communion, the more it matters how we're involved with each other's lives. And the more say we have over each other, and the more, the more accountability we have with each other, and the more we need to understand each other and work with each other, the closer we get to the table, the more we need to understand who we are and what we are, and what we're doing, and how we're going to do it. Within those terms, like a lot of people, okay, so let's talk about this for a minute. What does that mean, all that that I just said about these levels of the church, and, and it matters, the closer we get to the community table, the more it matters. When we talk about, <clears throat> if we read through the epistles, like the outworking of the church that Jesus founds, we see all these kinds of interactions. We see all these assets and liabilities being played out with people organizing themselves as a church. We see schism, division. We see problems. We see sin. We see correction. We see authority. We see structure. We see doctrine. We see teaching. We see all these things. And, and, and what matters about, the, the, the reason I say that the closer we get to the communion table, the more these things matter, the more we have to do with each other, is because that's the level at which the church becomes visible to the world. So I can, I can tell my neighbor that, yeah, the church is all over the world, and it, but that doesn't mean anything. What means something to him is when he can see a group of people who are doing the things that I'm saying. And that, so this goes back to... Um, my own experiences with, with preaching the gospel and trying to make a difference in regards to evangelism is that I spent a lot of time in my youth in a very active street ministry where I would do a lot, a lot of street preaching. Excuse me. A lot of street preaching. And over the years, as I, as I wrestled with those things, you know, as I wrestle with the fruit of those ministries, there were very, very few people that came into the kingdom from that ministry. And I spent many, 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 many hours in street ministry. And there was very, very little fruit. And it became daunting to me as a, as a young evangelist. Like, why, is, why isn't this working? 
where are they? Like for the amount of man hours into this work to have so little fruit, what's happening? Are, is just like, is, are the, is the world too cold? They don't want to be Christians. Am I doing it wrong? Is there, a miss, is there some kind of methodology? Is this the wrong approach? Is it the wrong time? Is it the wrong place? Is it the wrong way? And every weekend as I go out and preach, and every weekend as I come home empty-handed, and every weekend as I go out and preach, and I come home empty-handed, I go out and preach, and I come home empty-handed, I'm asking myself over and over again, where, what, what am I doing? Like, how do I make this meaningful? Like, I feel like I'm wasting my life here. There were certain lessons that were for me, and I, I think that, um, but there wasn't the fruit that I was looking for. And what I began to realize over a course of time as God was ministering to me was that the people that I was, so I lived in a little town and had a little church and I would go to the place where I came from 20 miles away and I would go out on the streets on the weekends and I would go to the frat parties and I would go to the crack park and I would go to the places that I knew to go to. I would hang out with the homeless people, we would go talk to the prostitutes, we would make our rounds through the city, and then we'd go to the mission and we'd pick people up and we'd bring them to church and we'd take them home, back to their shelter, we'd do all this stuff. And it was just like spinning wheels. And as I, be, as I began to just wrestle and wrestle with this issue, like where, where's the fruit, where's the work, where's the meaningful life invested in the gospel, what I began to realize is that for the people I was talking to, the 20 miles between me and them might as well have been 200. Because what I came to realize, and I came to be, believe fair, very strongly with a firm conviction, is that it is all well and good for us to go to people and tell them the message, the words of the gospel. It's all well and good for me to go into a frat party or a crack house and tell people this isn't how God made us to live. This isn't what humanity is supposed to be like. Jesus has the answers. He established a kingdom. You can be a part of it. That's great. But if the conclusion to that message isn't come and see it, if the conclusion to that message isn't by the way, Tuesday, you can come down the block and see us at our house and see how we live and see this new humanity and see the society of Jesus and see these people who are doing and living and being the things that I'm talking about. The gospel hasn't been effectively communicated. And when you compare those things together, when you can make the community a part of the message, then things start to move. Because the community is the manifestation of the things that we're talking about. And as such, you know, the love of the brethren is like a, it's the, the desire for the church, the desire for the community, the desire to be a part of the family, the gratitude that I have a seat at the table. I, 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 in my prayers all the time, publicly and privately, I thank God for my place at the table, in the family, in the community of God's people. Because I know it's not a right. It's not a place I come to by right. It's a place that I was given by the love and sacrifice of Christ and by the wooing of the Spirit and by the work of God in my life. That's why I have access to those things. 
And when you see it that way, then they become, that you cherish those things. They become valuable. And when they become valuable, then you lean into them and you listen to them and you learn from them and you trust them and you work with them. I would say, and I have, I've said this before and, and it still remains true, I think probably 60 to 70% of what I've learned about God in my Christian, my Christian journey has been from the community, from my brothers and sisters and the people around me. And, and probably 70 to 80% of what I've learned about myself in my Christian journey has come from the people around me. What do you do? How do I, how am I, what would my life be like if I took away 60% of what I've learned about God and 70% of what I've learned about myself? How shallow would my life be? What's left with that over the last 20-some years? The love of the brethren, the desire to be a part of the community, these things are the byproduct of who we are, of who God makes us to be. They are like breathing to the saints. And I, I mean that exactly how I say it. It, it. it ought to be autonomic. It ought to be automatic. It ought to be instinctual to love God's people. When Erica was first converted, um, she, was, she, was a, she was a very hardened girl. She was a very tough girl. She was not a kissy face, huggy, smoochy girl. She was a rough and tough, brawling girl. And one of the first things that she recognized, so she, so she, so we married, she was 17, she was converted, that was in the summer of 98, and, and she was converted later that year in the winter, as God started working in her life, and then it was later, late, even later in the winter that I was converted. But when she was converted, she started changing, and she started wanting different things, and she, she found, she heard on Christian radio that there was going to be a foster camp for, um, for, there was going to be a summer camp for foster children. And she had lived on the streets, and she, you know, she's just a couple years removed from, like, living on the streets. She's like, I want to help with that. So she went to the church group that was putting this on, and she would started going to the trainings and the meetings, and she was always, she found out she was the last one to leave. Like, she would be the last person there, and, like, shutting out the lights, and every week as they would meet together, she just found herself wanting to stick around and wanting to stay. And one day after those meetings, after everybody left and she's the last one out the door, she was driving home and she was thinking, I wasn't with her, but she told me about this later. She said, what's, what's wrong with me? Like, why, why am I like this? Like, why do I, what, where did this come from? Why do I like these people? Like, they're dorks. Like, they're, these aren't the kind of people that I'm used to being around, but I just, like, I can't get enough of being around these people. So Erica had no Christian background. She was just reading the scriptures. For, I mean, just dipping her toe in the water of the scriptures. She didn't know anything about Christianity. She just knew God had changed her life and how things were happening, and she's reading the scriptures. But it's not like she has a, a, a catalog of biblical references to key what's happening in her life to. This is just like it's happening, and then later on when she's figuring out this stuff is actually in the Bible. So she's changing, and she's wondering what's happening to her, and she's driving home this day, and she has Christian radio on, and some preacher says, 
By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. And she pulls over the car and she starts crying and praying. And she's like, that's it. That's why I'm like this. That's what's happened. That's why I love these people. And so I mean it that, that, that there ought to be an instinct of love for Christian people. And love covers a multitude of sins, right? Love makes it so that we can get along with each other. Love is what fills in the gap when things aren't well. Love is what covers over the problems. Love is what holds us together as a cohesive unit. Because I bring my baggage and you bring your baggage and I have problems and you have problems. And we're, we're trying and love is what smooths out that and makes it so it can work. But that does not mean it's easy. And that does not mean that there's not problems. And that does not mean that sometimes things don't work. What do we do when things don't work? It's the ugly question I never want to be asked. What am I supposed to do, Matthew? Okay, I listened to what you said. I heard all your stuff. It sounds great. But how am I supposed to do that where I am now? And I don't like being asked that question because I don't like being asked questions I don't have good answers to. And the fact of the matter is I don't have good answers to that question. People are vastly complicated. Communities are vastly complicated. Perspectives are vastly complicated. There's many, 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 many more factors and problems that I can evaluate, even when I know the situation well. <clears throat> Not to mention the fact that I've left many places. For all of my talk about how valuable the community is and how love is an expression that should come out of the heart of believers and how schism makes the body of Christ ugly and we can't afford to do that to him. I've also left a lot of places that I couldn't stay. I didn't feel like I could stay. Maybe I should say it that way. So rather than answer specific questions, I apply to general principles. And what I say is that even when the saints disagree, we should be working to disagree with as much grace, with as much goodwill, with as much kindness and charity as we can afford. That when difficulties come in the community, when we find ourselves irreconcilably bent in disagreements, You can't change other people's minds about things sometimes. You can't change situations. You can't change cultures. You can't change systems. You can only change yourself. I had a situation in a community that I left where I was just sharing this with a brother the other day. If you ever feel like you're 100% right and the other side is 100% wrong, you are in the most dangerous territory that I know of. It's an incredibly dangerous place to be. And I felt that way. I felt like 
the other side of the equation, my opposition in the church was acting badly, was not working with proper motives and proper intentions. Regardless of our disagreements, I didn't feel like they were coming in good faith to the controversy. Let me say right off the bat, even as a young man, I knew that's a remarkably rare condition. It is very often not the case that there are villains and heroes in the church. It's remarkably rare that somebody is just a bad actor with bad intentions who's out running amok and messing things up. I don't know if it, I don't know if I can count on one hand experience I've seen that, like that. They have happened, but they're remarkably rare. So when you feel like that, when you feel like I'm all right and they're all wrong, slow way, 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 way down because that's a dangerous place to be. Because when you feel that way, you start to just, you start to act that way. And it's very, very hard to hear from people and to, and to consider and to, to keep yourself open when you're in that, in that place. So when I was in that place, I, 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 was in, I was in leadership in the church where I was, but I was underneath the person that I had a controversy with. He was the bishop of the church. And I felt like I had to leave. And I left, and I tried to do things the best I knew how. Um, and I, looking back, I did a lot of things right. I did a few things that I would change. But, I, but I, when I left that situation, because I felt that way, because I felt like I was completely in the right and the other side was completely in the wrong, the problem was it was very hard to figure out then what I was supposed to learn from the situation. Because if I'm all right and he's all wrong, what is there for me to do? You begin to feel when you're in that place like you're just a victim of an environment. Like it's something that happened to you instead of with you. Like you weren't really a participant if you did nothing wrong. Because on the other side of it, how are you going to grow? How are you going to change? How are you going to be, how are you going to learn anything in that environment? And that's the real liability of feeling like you're all right, is that there's no capacity to learn. You've already learned it, right? If you're all right, you've already learned it, and there's no capacity to grow. There's no capacity to learn. There's no capacity to analyze and change and do differently in the future, and that's terrible. After I left that situation, I ended up back in that place. And um, I had started that church where I left with a couple other people. And when I went back to that place years later, after I had left, there had been more problems since I left. And there was kind of like scattered people all around that community who had, had different kinds of and similar kinds of problems with that church 
in my absence. And so when I came back, I didn't really have a place. I was coming back to the geography, not to a community. And so I was there, and they were there, and we started hanging out, and we started having talking together, and we were praying together, and we were street preaching together, and we were doing everything but church life together because I specifically didn't want to start a church next door to the church that I had already started. Not least of which because it makes me look like a fool. You started that one and didn't work. Now you're going to start another one? Like, that's just feels stupid. Like, I don't want to be that guy. So we were doing everything but actually meeting on Sunday and having communion together. And finally, those brothers pulled me aside and they said, hey, man, this is silly. Like, we're doing everything but meeting on Sunday. We're praying together. We're hanging out together. We're, keep, we're living like a community in the same place. We're street preaching. We're ministering. We're feeding the poor. We're doing all this stuff. Why aren't we having church? I said, well, let me pray about it. I'm not sure what to do, because it feels dumb. And as I prayed about it for a few days, I called all those brothers back together. And I told them this. I said, here's the thing. I feel like you're right. We are doing everything but having church together, but having meeting. So I get it. But I feel like if we do that, if we make that step, if we start having a meeting together, it's going to be great for a couple years. And things will be hot, and it'll be fun, and there'll be ministry, and there'll be broken people around, there'll be all kinds of stuff to do, and we'll be active and engaged and busy. And then in a couple years, there's going to be some problem between us, and we're going to start to have friction and beef with each other, and we're going to end up splitting apart. Because I don't properly understand why it happened in the past. I have no way to know how to keep it from happening in the future. And what I feel like, I know this sounds crazy, guys, but what I feel like is, why don't we all go back? Let's go back where we left. And I said, that's crazy. I said, I know it's crazy. But if I don't learn what I should have done, then I don't know how to act in the future. I just feel like there's, there's loops that aren't closed there. For instance, if we go back there, we won't be accepted. But here's the thing. They're non-resistant. They're not going to call the cops if we show up. <laughs> like, they won't make us leave. And what happens if even though they say I'm not their brother, I treat them like they are? What happens if I don't allow them to go? What happens if I won't allow them to push me away? What happens if I actually test the bounds of what I can change in the world with choosing to love people who are mad at me, who don't accept me, who won't listen to me. I said, I don't know what you guys are going to do. I feel for you, and I love you. But on Sunday, we're going to go back. And they said, you are crazy. And 
they left my house and I didn't know what they were going to do. It was probably six or seven people. And I, um, on Sunday morning, then I got the family ready and we walked up to the old church house and everybody was shocked to see me there. And I started greeting people and saying hello. And they said, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I just came to reconnect. I moved back into the area. I wanted to see everybody. And they said, oh, that's weird. And um, and then another brother walked in, and another, and another, and another. And then people were really shocked. And, you know, there's not, there's some problems with that. Like, that could easily look like a hostile takeover or a lot of things. <laughs> but we didn't act like that. We acted like we were there to make peace. We acted like we were there to try to love people. And so they would... Over the ensuing months, we would show up at prayer meetings. Uh, we would show up at Sunday meetings, and they would say, oh, we're having a brother's meeting, but you guys can't come because you're not brothers in the church. And we said, okay, whatever. And we'd show up at the prayer meetings, and we'd show up at the, brothers me- or at the, uh, at the church meetings, and we'd show up at all the functions that we could. And we see the thing was... I knew these people. Like, I had baptized some of their wives and children. Like, I had brought some of these people into the church. Like, they couldn't really ignore me. And there I was, back there. Like, what I'm saying is, I'm not going to let it go. Like, I don't want to let it go. What happened then is that God started answering prayers. We were going to prayer meetings and God started moving and doing things. And then, like, then we started having Sunday morning meetings and you you ever been in one of those church meetings when somebody preaches and everybody knows that God's speaking and after the preacher sits down, everybody just sits in quiet and nobody wants to move and nobody wants to break the silence and everybody feels like God's trying to do something here and I don't want, I just don't, I just don't want to move. Like I just want, let God be here. Like that started happening Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And what began to happen is God began to take three church splits and put them back together. And then what happened to me is that from that place, I, I hadn't actually like re-entered in the church. Like I wasn't back in communion things, but I was there involved in people's lives and things were going well. And I, I went on a trip then And that trip, like my trips often are, was very circuitous and took me a lot of places I didn't plan on going. And I, on that trip, eventually met a man named Finney Caravella. In Pennsylvania, we had some mutual friends. And when I met Finney, we we met at a kind of a back, closed door meeting about him wanting to start a, a, a church community in Boston And I had already been working for a long time on an urban Christian community, and I had given up. That's why I was back in Oregon, because I had kind of given up on my dreams. Like, I had been out there trying to make something happen, and I just couldn't find the people. I couldn't find the place. I couldn't make it happen. And so I had given up on all that and had gone back to Oregon, and that's when all this happened. And now I'm out here, and I meet Finney Caravella, and he's the first guy I've ever met. 
was talking the same way about the same things that I had always wanted. And when I sat down with him after that meeting, it was a bunch of people in Pennsylvania, and I knew all the people in the room except for Finney. And at the end of that meeting, after eight hours of talking through things, and it was basically me and Finney just bouncing off of each other. At the end of that meeting, he stands up and he says, hey, I thank you guys for your time, but here's the thing. I didn't come to talk. I want to do something. So I'm looking for people. I want to move into Boston. I want to start an urban community. Who wants to come? And it was like, tumbleweeds blew through the room and I almost chuckled and I was like I know all these people like these are these are these are Amish people in Lancaster County ain't nobody in this room moving to Boston you are barking up the wrong tree dude so nobody said anything and out they all go he says hey if you change your mind call me and everybody's left and it's just me and Finney and he sits down on the couch and he says hey if it seems like these are not new ideas to you. I said, no, they're not new ideas. I've been trying to do this for 10 years. And he said, well, can you come to Boston? And I said, I can. I can do whatever I want, but I've never thought about it. I've never planned on it. I've never been there. He's like, you should think about it. I was like, I don't even know you, dude. Like, this is the first time I met you. My point in the story is this. By the time I met Finney, because I had gone back, because I had learned the things that I was supposed to learn, because I could see how I could have actually changed outcomes and make things right and push past the offense, push past the difficulty, push past the problems. When it was time to move forward, I was ready to move. And God's blessed that. He's blessed it in my life. He's blessed it in my family. He's blessed it in the church. That's one of the better scenarios from my past. They aren't all that rosy. I've also helped a lot of people leave communities. Our entire church in Minneapolis, uh, not now, but was ori originally people who were fleeing a Hutterite colony by night. No joke. And there is a time and a place when things are just too bad. There's a time and a place where you have to say, I can't stay. I can't abide with this. But whenever you're in that place, wherever, wherever we're at with the community, I don't care if you're in the best Christian community or the worst Christian community. The thing that's your job is your attitude and your behavior and your love and your kindness and your character. You can't change systems, you can't change cultures, you can't change other people, but you are responsible for you. When people come to our church, one thing that we never neglect is to call the church that they're coming from. You know that I went and had a meeting at the colony that our people left by night with the elders of that community. Why would I do that? Well, it's quite a few reasons. But the fact of the matter is, even if you're in the worst community in America, those people know you. And that's what matters. That's what I want to know. The people that know you, what do they think? 
And I've had all kinds of conversations with people who want to come to our churches who have left another place. And it matters very much how people leave. It matters that they operate with grace and kindness, that they're not trying to cut people or hurt people or make a mess, or they're trying to be as gracious as they can. They're trying to be faithful as they can. Those things speak, and even, even when things become bad, even when things become unworkable, it has to be done. You and me are responsible for our behavior and our attitudes because the community matters, even when the community's wrong. They show us who we are. They teach us things about ourselves. We don't just naturally harmonize with everybody. We don't just naturally get along with everybody, and that's why community matters. Community doesn't matter for the people that you get along with. Community matters for the people that you don't get along with. That's where community matters. If I just need people I like, I can go to a, I can develop a hobby or go to an Elks Lodge or get involved in a rec group. I can, I can join a Facebook group. I can do a million things to find people I like and have common interests with. But how is your life tied together with people who you don't like? Who people aren't your natural best friend? That's the stuff that matters. That's why family matters, because you don't get to pick your family. I have, I have a brother that I get along with phenomenally. I have a brother that I always have problems with. That matters. I don't, I don't get to not be his brother. He's my, I'm, there's nothing I can do about that. He's my brother. How am I going to deal with that? How am I going to interact? How am I going to behave? How am I going to improve the relationship? How am I going to make things better? How am I going to be who I should be? When you don't get to pick who you're around. I've had controversy with my parents over my convictions, over my walk, over my, over my faith. I've had, I've had problems with my in-laws in the past over the things that we believe and the things that we do. The problem, you don't avoid problems how you deal with them. What are you going to do in those places? How are you going to make peace? How are you going to work it out? How are you going to try to learn and grow and be as humble as you can be. I've failed at that sometimes, and I've succeeded at it sometimes. But if you don't have access to people that you wouldn't naturally be tied to, you won't grow in those ways. to do okay I'm gonna I'm gonna jump way ahead and talk about that's that's the problem side of the category when things aren't well in community let's talk about how community should function and what we should be looking for and what we should be producing around us here's why community matters on the positive end of things From my perspective, in the work that I've done in the Church of Jesus Christ, 
the hardest thing, the hardest thing that, that the church does, the most complicated internal task that the church does, is create a place where people are real. I've been in lots of places with lots of people. I've seen lots of different situations play out. The hardest thing to produce for the church is a place where people are really themselves. And I used to think for many, many years, I used to think that the problem in that scenario, the problem with people not being real was hypocrisy, was lying, was not being honest. Like, I used to think that the real problem, the reason we didn't have a, 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 a reality in the church where people weren't honest with who and what they were in the church, the problem was that people were being phony. They were one thing at home, and they were a different thing in the church. I thought that's the biggest problem, and so I focused my ministry and my preaching on trying to route out this hypocrisy, this, this disingenuousness, this phony, like you, you, you say you're one thing, but you're actually another. And that is an issue, but it is far from the issue. It is far from the biggest issue. The biggest issue in the church, the biggest issue to resolve in your community is this, and you can do this regardless of what anybody else does. The biggest issue is that when I come to the church, the biggest issue is not me presenting a false view of who I am. In other words, it's not putting on a mask that looks nothing like me. It's not saying I'm one thing in the church and being a different in the rest of my life. The problem with my experiences within the church, my problem in the church with reality is that when I come to you, when I come to the church, I don't present a false view of me. I present the best view of me. And that's the problem. When I curate what you get to see out of my life, when I take the best parts of who I really am, like I am that person, it's just me at my best, and that's what I put in front of you. That's more of a problem than, than demographically speaking, like in numbers, that's more of a problem in preventing our real, honest involvement in one another's life than hypocrisy. Because if all you see is the curated me, what happens with the broken parts of me? You never see him. They never get ministered to. They never get the light of day. They never get exposed. They never get worked on. They never get seen. And everything in me doesn't want you to see those things. They do, I don't want you to see me at my worst. That's the real problem of community. I've looked at, over the years, I've looked at different solutions to that problem. How do we create reality? How do we create space in the community so that I'm not afraid for you to see who I really am? This principle is one of the unnatural things, like loving your enemies. The whole social order of man, 
the way that we greet one another, the way that we shake hands, the way that we smile, the way that we say, hi, how are you today? All of our social interactions are designed to curate a certain experience in the world. We put out, like with our clothes, with our presentation, with our mannerisms, with our speech, with our behavior, with our attitudes, all of this, from the time you are first learning that you have to wear clothes, from that time till you learn how to speak, till you learn how to be around other people, all your life is taught teaching you how to present yourself to other people. And that's normal. Like, how do you have an orderly society without that? It has to be like, like, like the civil structure of the world. It has to be that people curate a view of themselves that's publicly acceptable. But you do that so innately and so intrinsically and so you've so well and deeply learned that, that taking that off feels like a crime. It feels like something you would never ever do. It feels like exposure. It feels like nakedness. It feels like... I don't ever want you to see that. And the Christian community, and especially the communion table, is supposed to be the place where everybody puts that aside and you see who I really, really am. How do you do that? There's some tools. I've I've explored and enacted a lot of these tools, and it's still hard. But here's some of the tools I've found. Proximity is a tool. Being close to people is a tool. This is why I'm a Christian communitarian. This is why I believe in living close to the saints of God. It's what I call accidental community. The best parts of community are the parts that you never plan for. The best parts of community are the parts that are never on a calendar, that are never pre-planned. The best parts of community are accidental. And if you shape your life so that you can have accidental community, where you can rub shoulders with each other, where you can run into each other, where you can hear each other, when you can see each other, when you can pass by the way and stop and have a conversation, when you can have to rub on each other because... You, Okay, so I lived in, uh, I live in a community now with my, it's a multi-generational home. It's like my grandchildren and my married daughter and my family live in a house together here. And the brotherhood lives around me in the neighborhood. But before then, I lived in, in Finney's community and I had three families in one place. And that kind of an of accidental community, like it's negative and positive. It's positive in the sense that you happen to be, you know, going to take the trash out and you run into each other and you stop for a few minutes and you talk and you say, hey, how's things going and what happened with that thing? And you stay really close connected. Maybe you have a word for each other. Maybe you have a blessing for each other. Maybe you stop and pray because something's going on. All that kind of stuff that you just never would plan for, but there it is right in your lap and you're like, oh, this is great. I'm so glad you live this way. But then on the other side, when you come home after a long day at work and some child has been running through, rummaging through your shed and your tools and leaving bikes in the sh and you got to get out of your car and move all this stuff in order to be able to get in and you're like, I'm just tired and want to go home with well, these bratty children making a mess in my yard. Why am I putting up with this? That stuff does a lot of good too. It does a lot of good because you have to learn how to work out something that you don't like. You have to find a right way to say, hey, man, can we make sure the bikes are picked up at the end of the day? 
be super cool. And then it doesn't always happen. And you say, hey, man, I thought we were going to. And that rubbing on each other, if you do it in a relationship with people you love, just like in family, makes everybody better. And the next time, it's my children who did something. And you got to realize, hey, you're not the hero here. Like, you got problems too. And that kind of like gritty reality of life makes community so much more meaningful. And it makes it meaningful because those people that you have accidental community with, those people that you are near to, that you can stop in and see unannounced and unexpected and unplanned for, those people get a slice of your life that isn't curated. It's really hard to always be on. This is why Jesus says, out of the issues of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Like, you can't always be on guard. There's finally a place where you're just who you are. When, when, when you're in the third week or the third month or the third year of taxing medical appointments, when your wife is sick, when things aren't well, when work isn't going well, when church is falling apart, when things are hard, when all of those events that make life difficult, when they happen to you, how do you act? And who gets to see that you? What the sad truth of the matter is that for most Christians, it's only your spouse and your children that gets to see that you, and they get taken advantage of, and they get, oftentimes, God forbid, they get abused and neglected and mistreated, and nobody's there to see it, and nobody's there to stop it, and nobody's there to fix it, and nobody's there to intervene. Because we've set up our lives like Americans, where we're the king of the castle, and I don't want anybody around me. In this space, it's just me. I don't have to. Here's why the American dream is what it is. I want to I create a little space in the world where nobody can tell me nothing. That's the American dream. And far, far too many Christians live the American dream in that sense. I don't care how rich or poor they are. That's what they're after. I don't want to be bothered in the space of these walls. And I don't care if those walls are this big or that big. When you're trying to create a space where nobody can touch you, where it's just me in my castle, nobody can come across the walls. Stay out unless I let you in and I can clean up the floor and I can curate my heart and my smile and make sure that all the things look right for you. I won't let you in unless that happens. But if you, if you don't want that, and I don't want that, I don't want that because I don't want to be that guy when I'm 80 years old. And I don't want my children and my wife to be the only ones who ever saw my problems. And I hid it from the rest of the world. I want that stuff out. It's a cancer. I don't want that in my life. I know it's there and I don't want it. And if I don't put my life in the place with other people where they'll see that stuff and say, Hey man, why are you yelling at people? I saw that in the other day when you were... When you went out to go address your child, and that was, it didn't look right, man. Hey, I, are things okay with you and your wife? Sounds like things are rough. Can we talk about it? Most people don't want that. But it's the most valuable, the most valuable tool of discipleship. Now, I say that proximity is a tool I'm over time. I say that proximity is a tool because you can live close to people and not do that. It's not a cure-all. It's not a cure. It's a tool. I've lived right next to people and had problems and had isolation and had distance and had difference, and it's not a cure-all. 
but it is a tool. The other tool is, so, so what I would say is we need to curate our life. We, need, we do need to curate our life to put ourselves in places that create that space for other people to see me when I'm unprepared. The other tool is vulnerability. Do you know that the Bible says that whoso hides his sin shall not prosper. Confess your faults one to another that you may be healed. Taking the parts of you that you don't like and letting other people see them is very risky behavior. It's not normal. It is holy. It's holy. It's holy because it's uncommon. It's holy because it's valuing God more than yourself. It's holy because it's agreeing with God. Here's the fact about vulnerability. Whether you confess your faults or you don't, they're still there. And when, when we don't have the capacity to share that with the disciples that we're walking with, when we don't have, express the vulnerability and the courage to be honest with our problems, our problems are still there. And we're not hiding them from God. And we're not hiding them from the Holy Spirit. And to be honest, you're probably not actually even hiding them from the people that you're close to. You just think you are. But vulnerability says, I'm willing to put it on the table. I'm going to take a risk in our relationship, and I'm going to show you what's behind the door. I'm going to invite you in to see the mess. My wife hates it when we have people over and it's messy. My poor daughter, Chloe, came home from Oregon. She came in my house, and she's like, Papa, we are keeping people. Why is the house so messy? I feel, I, feel, I feel terrible that we have people in our house and it's this messy. I said, babe, I, I, I don't have a wife. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm trying. You're right. Apologies to our guests. But sometimes the mess is just there. And it's better to get help with the mess. If you, if you practice vulnerability, you can be hurt. You can. People, can. people can take advantage of you. They can hold things against you. There are things. Vulnerability is not free, and it's not cheap. People can take advantage of those things. But I, I'm offering you this. Whether they do or whether they don't, I believe that God will hear you and bless you when you put things in the light no matter what other people do. I gotta stop. Here's my takeaway point. If things are bad in the community that you're experiencing, 
you need to be responsible for yourself. And I know that those are things can be very complicated to navigate. I know that it can be very hard to know what to do. I know that the, the push and the pull of family and community and systems and persuasions and backgrounds and all these things, they just, you, you end up we wearing them like a burden, like a weight, and you don't know how to deal with those things. And I'm, n I'm not trying to minimize any of that. I know it's difficult. I know it can be hard. But there's a path to walk. There's a path to walk that's righteous even through those things. And you need to find that path of righteousness. You need to find the path where you don't have regrets when you move forward. And that doesn't mean everybody's going to agree with you and everybody's going to like it. It just means you need to be able to look back and say, I did what, I, I did what was right. I was honorable to God first. That's hard to do. Secondly, we need people where we can be real. And there again, you may be in an environment or a system or a culture or a place where that isn't normal, natural, and there's not a place for it. And that's hard, and I hate that, and I know. But you can create it. You can create it with just a few people. All it takes is just a couple of saints who say, hey, I need to be real about some stuff. Can we get together? And the ideal expression of that is that we do that around communion tables and all these things. But you can, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. What I'm saying is that you can create little pockets of peace and of community and of fellowship in almost any environment. If you can create them behind the Iron Curtain, if you can create them in communist China, if you can create them in prisons, if you can create them in places that are the hell that men make for other men, if if little pockets of community and peace and fellowship can happen in those places, they can happen anywhere. And all it takes is a few committed people to make that kind of space. So if you don't have it institutionally, if you don't have it culturally, find a couple of people and talk about these ideas and say, hey, here's, I'm thinking, I, I know it feels weird, but I'm thinking maybe we could just meet together and pray together and talk about real life. Talk about what God's doing in our lives. Talk about what we want God to do in our lives. And confess our sins to each other. Maybe that's as couples or families or a few individuals or a few brothers or a few sisters or whatever. And what I believe is this, I've seen it happen time and time and time and time again, is that when people are faithful to the things that they know to do, God makes space to grow in those things. I know it doesn't always look like it. I know that's hard to see sometimes. But when you, when you say, okay, when you sit on alone at the end of your bed and you say, what is God trying to do with me? And if the answer to that question is something about these issues of like reality and community and somebody to be a disciple with, if, you, if, if that's where you're at, if you just start, I've told you again and again, just do something. Just start somewhere. And see how it goes and start working it out. And you'll, you'll have mistakes and the problems and things won't work right, but keep moving forward. And you'll find a bigger and a bigger and a bigger access and, and, and experience with those things that you really want in the kingdom of God. It's the best part and the worst part about God that he gives people the desires of their hearts. 
that's either a blessing or a curse. And when the things that you want in your heart are pure and you pursue those things, space will be made for those things. I really believe that. So that's, that's my point on community. I want to, let, let's pray and, and close this series of teachings and then I want to open it up the, so that we can have uh, just some dialogue, conversations, questions, whatever. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we've been able to spend together. I thank you, Father, for the things that you've allowed us to examine together. I thank you for all the experiences and the lives in this room. I thank you, Father, for, for giving us a path to walk and, and giving us a vision of Jesus Christ. I pray that he would grow larger and larger in our lives and we'd find faithfulness. I'm asking you in Jesus' name for your grace to be on these brothers and sisters in this place, that you would speak to us, move in us, and create the kingdom in expanding borders in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.